Actually, I'm really excited to come to Boone, believe it or not. Um, there's actually, I have great memories in Boone. So in high school, I was a wrestler, but each year I would want to do something to, after the season to have fun. So I'd play soccer and not take it seriously. But I'd come, we came up to Boone, my last, second to last game, my senior year for Substate, and we were playing against Boone High, uh, and I scored my only goal of my whole career. It was crazy. I don't know. It just happened. Um, and then in college, one of my best friends liked NASCAR, and he'd beg all of us to watch it with him on Sunday, which none of us would, um, or if we would, we'd just take naps. But one time we surprised him. We're like, let's go to the Boone Speedway on Friday night. So we came out here, and we're sitting there, and they announced, hey, we're going to have a chicken tossing contest. And I thought to myself, man, who doesn't want to throw a chicken? Like, just go on, boy, and just throw it up and see what happens. But it wasn't as cool as I thought it would be. It was just rubber chickens. You wore these big pants, and you're trying to toss. But, hey, we won. So apparently I have good luck in Boone. I can win chicken tossing contests, and I can score soccer goals. So... I don't know. Natalie, I'm probably going to buy a lotto ticket here while we're here in Boone today. But. So we're going to continue our series in Galatians this morning. So we're going to continue in, the cha- in chapter 3. Uh, we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 3 last week, and we're going to continue on with 15 through 22. Um, one thing I always try to do in these shorter book series is at some point within the series, the 10 weeks, I always try to read it out loud, the whole book in one sitting. So Galatians takes about 20 minutes to read. And as you do that, as you read the whole book in one sitting, really you realize that there's one driving theme for the book of Galatians. And you've probably already picked up on it, but it's this idea that we are made right with God through faith alone. Paul just keeps coming back to that message. Paul, the author writing to, these, to this church in Galatia, keeps coming back. And it's actually this like stern book, right? There's a, he uses harsh language last week. He's like, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Like, I don't know, man. That's harsh language. But he keeps coming back and back and back to this one idea that, that we are justified or made right with God through faith alone. So one of the questions as each week we're going through is what is the unique contribution of, of this particular passage to this big overarching idea that we are made right with God? Um, and one of the questions that we begin thinking as we've talked and fleshed out this idea that we're made right with God through faith alone is, well, what do we do with all these rules in the Bible, right? What's their purpose? We have the Ten Commandments. How do those fit into this idea that we are saved by grace alone? Uh, why did God give us rules? If, if we can't be saved by following the rules, if we can't be made right with God by following the rules, if we even live our whole life through grace, then what, what is the purpose of rules? Why, why do we have all these rules in the Bible? Like, I read through, and the majority of the Bible just seems like rules. So what, how do we understand those? What is their point? Why did God include rules? And then, if we understand that, there's this idea of grace, and how do grace and rules work together? Are those contradictory So, that's the idea that we're going to explore this morning. Why did God give us the law? Why why is it in our Bibles? And then is that law contradictory to God's grace? So, our point this morning, why did God give us the law? The law is a price tag. The law is the price tag that reveals just how costly grace was. That's why we have the law. The law was this, this price tag that reveals how much it actually cost Christ to save us. So in, this, in these 
verses from 15 to 22, Paul is going to first lay out this argument uh, that the law didn't make the promise of grace void. It didn't cancel that promise. And then he's going to answer these two questions. Uh, Why do we have the law and does the law contradict grace? So the first question or the first part is this argument that Paul lays out. So in verse 15, Paul starts, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. So the argument that Paul's laying out here is that the covenant was established by a promise made to Abraham. So therefore, when the law comes in, it didn't annul or make the promise void. So he uses this example. So in verse 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So when you make a covenant, when you make a promise, uh, you don't change it after you've made it, right? The foundation that that promise or that covenant was made doesn't shift. So when Natalie and I got married a little over a year ago, we made this covenant and we ratified it on the promise that, We won't part until death separates us. Now, if in like five years we're like, hey, I don't really know about that part. Let's change it to something else. Like if you burn lasagna, we're going to dissolve the covenant. No, that would completely shift what the foundation of that covenant was made on, what it was ratified on. So what Paul's saying is that even in human covenants, when, when there's a covenant made, that covenant is established on something. And in this case, the covenant between Abraham and God was established on a promise. So therefore, it will forever remain on that promise. So what was the promise? Well, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. So as you go through the Bible, the first 11 chapters of Genesis... Uh, It describes first creation, and that creation was perfect, and God made it, and it was beautiful and flourishing. But then you get to chapter 3, and all of that dissolves and and breaks down as humans rebel against God. And in the first 11 chapters, you have this, like, downward spiral of this horrible, like, humanity falling apart. And then you reach chapter 12. So in view of humanity getting worse and this downward spiral, God resolves to save humans, to save these rebellious humans. And the way he's going to do that is he chooses one family, the family of Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, you have God making a promise to Abraham that one day he would bless all of the world through his family. So then you come across Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, you have this covenant ceremony where God ratifies this covenant that he made with Abraham to promise that one day he was going to bless Abraham and through him all the families on earth through this offspring. So here's Paul's argument. He says, look, in Genesis 15, you have this covenant ratified, and it was ratified on the promise that God gave Abraham, that one day all the families on earth were going to be blessed through this one family, and specifically through a particular offspring. 
So if that is what the promise was established on, it can't change. God made a covenant with Abraham, and that was based on a promise. So he goes on in verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. When you make a covenant, you can't change the terms afterwards, right? Natalie and I can't change the terms of our marriage that we made a public profession on, symbolized it with rings. We can't change it in five years or else that would completely make our covenant void. The same, when God made a covenant with Abraham that the inheritance would come through this promised offspring, when the law of Moses was introduced 430 years later, it didn't make that promise void. It didn't change the covenant. We still get the inheritance through this promise. So what people were thinking in Galatia when they, when they saw the law or even the Israelites, they were thinking, man, God must have changed his mind. Uh, now we have to interact with God through the law. We've just received this 430 years after Abraham. He must have changed his mind. Or the law has taken the place of the promise. But what Paul's saying here is, no, that covenant was made on the promise that there was going to be an offspring that was coming. That offspring was Christ. And the inheritance was going to come through him. When the law came in, it didn't change the terms of the covenant. Rather, the promise of the covenant has been fulfilled by the offspring. So, the law didn't make the promise that inheritance would come through the offspring. It didn't void that. It's not that we're justified through the law or made right with God through the law. God's covenant with Abraham rested on the promise and not the law. So here's where I think a lot of us are going to start having questions, and Paul's going to anticipate this. If the covenant was established by the promise, and nothing could ever change that, why did God give us the law? Right? What was the purpose of this law? And if that's the case, well, aren't the law and grace in contrary? Is the law against the promise? So Paul's going to anticipate these two questions and then give a response to them. So, verse 19, we see the first question. So, Paul says, why then the law? The answer, it was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here's the second question. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So two questions. Question one, why the law? Why did God give us a law? If, if he wasn't going to use that to give us an inheritance of eternal life, why did he bring this law into existence? Well, the answer that Paul gives, right, it was added because of the transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So this phrase, it was added because of transgression. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, it could mean really four things. One, it could, it could be that God implemented this sacrificial s- system so that sins could be uh, atoned for or cleaned up. 
It could be that God just wanted to teach people more about his rules and, and teach them how to obey. It could be that, uh, like a swimming pool, like if you don't have the posted sign, I don't know not to dive in, right? Well, I should know, but the written, it being written explicitly, now I know that I'm actually breaking a real rule. Or fourth, it could be to reveal the sinfulness of people and, and show them that they need a savior. Now, this last one is probably what Paul had in the forefront of his mind. So with this baby coming, um, you got to know, I actually know a ton about babies. I know that they breathe. What else do I know? I, I know I've been telling you things that I know. I, I've changed a diaper before, so I think I got it. No, so we're sitting in this first uh, appointment with the, the doctor. You go into Mary Greeley, and you sit down, and they're, like, going over insurance and going over the, like, birthing process and everything. And as she's talking, I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, I think I got this. I'm, I'm following you. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Is that the right way? Picking up what you're putting down? Yeah, okay. Smelling what you're stepping in? Yeah, I was totally smelling what she was stepping in. But as she's telling us this, this stuff of what's about to happen, what we're about to experience through pregnancy, I'm just like, I got this. I know I can keep a baby alive. <laughs> and then she hands me this pamphlet, and I'm like reading this little one-page pamphlet for dads, and I'm like, yeah. I knew this stuff. I mean, it's helpful to have it written down. It, it's nice. It has bullet points. I'm like, perfect. And I show it to Natalie. I'm like, Natalie, check out this pamphlet. I'm, I'm good to go. I know how to have a baby. I know how to keep one alive. And she looks at me, and she goes, Stephen? And she holds up this, like, massive book. I don't know if I've ever seen a book this big. And she goes, you didn't see it, but the nurse handed me a 400-page book. And I'm, like, immediately like, oh, my word, holy smokes. I know nothing about kids. I am going, and so when I saw this, this book handed to me with all these, like, here's what you do in this case, this case, I was just like, oh, my word. What did I get myself into? We're killing this. I'm going to kill this child. Natalie, what if I'm eating popcorn and it slips out of my hands and it dies? I don't want that to happen. I love this baby girl. I don't want her to die. But when I saw this book, I immediately became aware of how inadequate I am as a dad. And so I'm like hopping on Mary Greeley's website. I was like, baby basics. Oh, yes, sweet. They have classes for baby basics. I'm going to sign up for six of them. Let's do this. They're all the same class, but I just know that I need to hear it like six times. Listen, I thought I had it down when I just had this kind of vague idea. As she's go, as she, this nurse was just telling us what we we're going to go through. And then when she handed me the pamphlet, I thought, I was like, yeah, I think, okay, that's insightful, but I think I still got it. But when I saw the 400-page, like, everything a parent needs to know to keep their child breathing at all points of time, I was like, oh, my word. I know nothing. I am so inadequate for this task. I need help. I need a savior. Sign me up for baby basics. Okay, this is kind of what the law does for us, right? Some of us think, man, this whole God thing, I, th I think I got it. You just pretty much have to be a nice person. You... You do the right thing. I was telling Zach over here, right, Zach? Yesterday, Natalie and I were, were moving, and we bought these little plates for light switches, and they're 28 cents, and they forgot to scan one. And I was like, ah, oh, I should go take a quarter back. You know, if you just do those sorts of things at Lowe's, you got this God thing. I, I think I got it. And then we get the pamphlet version, right, the Ten Commandments, and we think, okay, that's insightful, it's helpful, it's kind of in bullet form. Okay, I can do this, I can handle this. But when we go through 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the historical books, the prophets, Psalms, the other poetry books. Then we get to Jesus' teachings, and we actually meditate on it and read it and, and allow ourselves to be amazed at what it says. We all of a sudden see the 400-page version, and we go, oh, my word. I am so inadequate. How am I ever going to measure up to this? How can I ever do this? I am in desperate need for a Savior. The law that came 430 years after this promise made to Abraham, it reveals just how evil humans really are and just how desperate we were for someone to save us, someone who would come, desperate for this offspring who was promised. And it wasn't, this, this law wasn't just made up by men. It wasn't just put in, in place by men, right? Verse 20 or verse 19. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, and God is one. So we got this law, not just, not just from man, not just from Moses, but the laws weren't his invention, but were put in place by angels who were working under God's authority. So our first question, why the law? Why would God give us this law? Was it just to to give us a bunch of rules that we have to follow to be good? No. Even more, it was to reveal to us something. It was to reveal to humans just how evil they were and just how desperate they are for the offspring of the promise who would become their savior. Listen, when we see the law in its fullness, in all of its steps, and realize just how much we don't meet the standards It reveals to us what is required to be in the presence of a holy and majestic and all-powerful God. And as we see more clearly how holy God is, we see with more staggering clarity how evil we are and how desperate we are for a Savior. The second question that Paul is going to address is in verse 21. Is this law then contrary to the promises of God? What's the answer? Certainly not. No, it's not. It's not contrary to the promise of God. He says, if the law could have been given to give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who would believe. Is the law contrary to the promise of God? Is the law contrary to grace? Are are these rules contrary to grace? Certainly not. No. Why? Because the purpose of the law was never to give life. It wasn't to bring life. But instead, what was it? Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That was the purpose of the law. The law reveals these requirements that God has, reveals the perfection of God and His holiness, and what was required to be in God's presence. But didn't provide the resources to obey. Right, it said, here's the rules, but it gave us no ability to obey them. But instead, it imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, now this is interesting, right? It says that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promised by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Scripture imprisoned everything, so that the promise could come, Right? Imprison things so that, or for the purpose of. 
So not only are law and grace not at odds, they're not contrary, but they actually rely on one another. Grace relies on the law. The law imprisoned everything so that the promise might be given. The law and the promise need one another. It's kind of like a price tag on a gift. Um, when you give or get a gift from someone, uh, you usually, you're supposed to scratch it off, right? Scratch off the price tag so you don't know. But sometimes that doesn't happen or someone finds the receipt. And, and maybe before you see actually how much that gift cost, you appreciated the gift. You appreciated that they gave it to you. They thought it was nice. But then when you see how much the gift actually cost, all of a sudden you're like, oh my word. <laughs> why would that person pay that much for me? They, why would they do that? They are so generous. They are so kind. And, and when you see more vividly, more clearly, actually what it costs the person to give you that gift, all of a sudden you are overwhelmed with gratitude. You're absolutely astonished. When I was a junior high or late elementary, my parents saved up and took us down to Florida. We have an uncle that lives there, so we stayed with him. And then we got to go to Disney World one day, which is absolutely amazing when you're in elementary school and you're like, oh my word, there's Aladdin. I love that guy. And then you try to do more like push-ups than, uh, what's the guy on Beauty and the Beast? Gus, Gusta. Okay. You can't. He is, he is massively strong. It's not fake muscles. <laughs> but so we loaded up, went down there, and, and as like a sixth grader, you're super grateful. You have amazing time at uh, Disney World. You love it. You're like, man, this is sweet. Thank you so much, Mom and Dad. I can't believe you do this. And, and you're excited. But there's something that changes now that like, I'm an adult and actually have a little bit more of an understanding of how much things cost. I'm like, wow, thinking back to when I was in sixth grade, where we were as a family, that is incredible that my parents would take us there. Oh my word. And, and when I actually understand the cost of that trip, I actually understand what happened or what didn't happen. I appreciate it at a new level. I'm more grateful this is how the law and grace rely on one another. When you hear God loves you, and even that he sent his son to die with you, you may have this, this appreciation. You might be like, well, man, that's nice. Yeah, sure, I believe that. But when you open the law and you see all of the ways that it reveals the holiness of God, you begin to be overwhelmed by just how high the bar is. When you grasp that God is infinite in holiness. And even just one sinful thought that we have is enough to deserve eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. When you see in Leviticus this, this two-week-long purification process for the high priest to go into the presence of God. When, when you see people being punished for things that you're like, what? He just stole something. When you hear... You shall not covet. And actually think on that. Man, what does it mean not to covet? We begin to be overwhelmed by our sinfulness. We, we begin to see with more clarity the holiness, the absolute holiness of God. This is the purpose of the law. It shows us, it points us, it reveals with more clarity God's infinite holiness. And this law, Paul says, imprisoned everything under sin. We're prisoners on death row. We, we all have fallen so short of this holy perfection, this holy perfection of God, our Savior. 
And we may have this vague idea of like, yeah, I got this. It's, it's not that hard to be right with God. I can handle this. It's not that bad. But when the law came, we became horrifically aware of our imprisonment, our desperate need for a Savior. And Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect one, came to us in the prison cell and and traded his white robes for our filthy striped ones. He took our shackles and put them on his wrists and his ankles. And they led him to the cross to be executed in our place. And, And as he's on the cross, all of the wrath of God for every sin, every committed, every, every thought, every attitude was being poured out on him. God's wrath burned down on Jesus. Why? So that we could be clothed in dazzling white. In the prison cell of sin, Jesus gave us everything he deserved and took on everything that we deserved. He loved us with his eternal love and took our sin and filth and experienced eternal punishment so that we could be set free from the bondage under the law and be saved. When you have a vague idea that God loves you, you may think, oh, that's so nice, right? That's so nice. But when you, with crystal clear vision, see how the law shows us just how desperate our condition was and just how costly Christ's sacrifice was for us. That will change your life. Um, there was two people. One was speeding 10 miles over the speed limit, and he gets pulled over. And the cop gives him a stern warning and then says, okay, I'm letting you off the hook. Go ahead. The second was sentenced to life in prison. There's no hope for escape. And in his darkest moment, the prison warden came and said, you've been set free. The wife that you never thought you'd see again, the kids that you never were going to hold again, go home, go home to them. Be with them. You're free. So who's going to be changed forever in that situation? Who's never going to be able to shut up about his experience? Who's going to be dancing and singing for joy? Who's going to be more grateful? We all have this this awful tendency to view the grace we have received from God as if it was simply a warning from a cop not to speed anymore. How did you live this week? This week, did you live in the reality that you were once sentenced to, li- to death eternal, spending eternity separated from God? Or did you live as if you were just warned by a policeman? Did you see God's grace as astonishingly costly? Or did you see it as a nice good thing, a nice example? Why do we have the law? It's to be a startling reminder every day of just how desperate we were for a Savior, and that Jesus came to people who were desperate for a Savior and paid the most costly price to get us, to save us. The law and grace aren't at odds. They're not contrary. Instead, they rely on one another, right? The law, Paul says, the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
And until we understand this relationship between law and grace, we will actually never properly worship Jesus. We'll never properly pursue good works motivated out of grace. So if we, like the Galatians, think that the law took the place of the promise, then we have lost Jesus, right? That's pretty much the whole point of Galatians. We cannot be made right with God through the law. The law is powerless to give life to people, and it's powerless to help people obey God. But when we finally stop seeing the law as this way to get life, then we can, for the first time, see it at all of its depth and all of its weight, right? We have this, this tendency to, to soften the edges of the rules that we see in Scripture, right? Thou shalt not covet. Well, that just means, like, don't do it too much. Like, you can appreciate your neighbor's things, but it's okay. It's kind of a gray area. But when we're finally free from getting to God through the law, we can embrace the law with all of its devastating weight to our pride, right? We don't have to try to make it manageable or, or try to make it attainable. Honor your father and mother. When I actually believe that I'm saved by grace, then I can actually feel the, whole, the full weight of that command. Oh, wow. How many times, even now as an adult, am I not doing that? And as we see how we don't meet the standard, we see the beauty of Christ. We see how he went and paid our penalty. Jesus, you paid that cost for me. You sacrificed so much for me. And we worship Jesus. When we see just how costly the sacrifice was, it changes our entire life. This week, have you lived in the reality that you once were dead in your sin, but have been made alive by the costly grace of God, by the costly sacrifice of Christ? Right? If you really thought of yourself as someone whose only hope is Jesus, the the one twig on a steep mountain that you're hanging on to, what things would lose their value to you? Right? What would you care more about? if you really believe that it costs Jesus everything to save you, how would that change the way you worship him? Oh man, I, I don't really like singing. I sound like a cat in a garbage can. But when we say, we've been saved from eternal death. Who cares what I sound like? I'm shouting. I'm screaming. How would your love of money change? How would, how would you parent your family different? If you really believe that you were once helpless and separated from God, but now have been saved, how would that make you bold in sharing the message? I have a friend who, uh, a couple, way back, like 15 years ago, was facing life in prison and uh, from crimes he committed. And, and, this crazy story, but six months into serving his sentence, was set free, was pardoned for his crimes, and now you talk to him, and he goes, oh, I hate the man I once was, but I'm going to tell you this story because it glorifies Jesus. Why? Because he has experienced salvation. He's experienced freedom in his darkest moment. Listen, Jesus comes and rescues us, and we can't help but share that when we understand the sentence that was against us, the eternal death that we were facing. When Jesus gave you everything he deserved, 
all the spiritual blessing, all the riches in the heavenly realm, the spirit to actually empower us to obey him. We begin to be people who are not plagued by covetous hearts. We begin to be people that love our parents and honor them. Listen, the question today is, are you living your life as if a cop just let you off with a warning? Right? Is that how you see God? Johnny, I saw that. Don't do it again. I'm watching. If that's the case, what Paul is saying is, is spend some time reading the law. Meditate on it. Consider it. And realize as you do just how great the sacrifice Jesus made for you. It wasn't a slap on the hand. We were rotten to our core and Christ took our place to redeem us. Rebels. While we were enemies, Christ died for us to make us alive, to adopt us as his children. And the law helps us see with greater clarity just how costly that sacrifice was. Jesus died while we were trapped in sin so that we could be saved. And as we grasp that with the reality that we are now children of God, it leads us to worship and it will actually change our life. Right? Nobody left a warning from a cop and changed their life. Maybe for a couple weeks you slowed down your speeding, but eventually it crept back up to five, ten miles an hour. But people who are saved from the imprisonment of sin their lives are changed forever. Why do we have the law? It's to help us see and remind us who we once were and to make Jesus that much more beautiful. Right? As you're reading uh, all the Psalms that say, oh, the law is so beautiful. You might be thinking, man, how can I say that? I, I, I don't really understand the law. How, how can I say that? Well, you can say the law is so beautiful when you see the one who fulfilled the law to save you. Oh, the law is so beautiful because ultimately it points me to Christ who, while I was helpless, he did everything that the law required and then he paid the penalty for those who are lawbreakers. Now I can say the law is beautiful because Jesus is beautiful. And the penalty of sin that once was my condemnation, I now have freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, we are so, so grateful that you, by your grace, have saved us. God, I pray that as we see with more clarity the law, um, all these commandments, that, that we would understand that, oh, we are so helpless to obey them, but that Jesus came and obeyed them for us so that we could live, that the penalty of being a lawbreaker would not be against us, and that now we have full righteousness, full perfection in Christ through faith alone. Not from trying to follow the law, but through faith, through grace, because of what Christ did. God, I pray that as we read the law, that as we read these rules, that they would help us grasp your holiness more, that it would lead us into worship, that it would lead us into to loving Christ because he saved us from so much. God, you say that he who has been forgiven of much loves much. God, we have been forgiven from so much, and the law helps us to see that. And I pray that as we reflect on that, that it would lead us to loving Christ more.
Amen.